Hi, I'm Ed Connell, and this is Coming Out the Pod, the podcast where I interview members of the LGBTQ community and ask them to share with me their coming out stories. In this first episode, I chat with author and LGBT campaigner James Ward. I first met James many years ago when I was managing London Titans Football Club, an LGBT team in southwest London. He came to train with us one summer and we became friends. I had a great time talking to James. We covered a wide range of topics, including his coming out in the army, the subject matter of his first book, which is about to be made into a play. He also talks about his latest book about life in the chemsex world. He told me about how the McFly posters on his wall may have led to his colleagues' suspicions and how his bank statements, which were being opened by his mum back home in Wales, almost led to her finding out he was gay. And he just basically just ridiculously took the full stops out of GKY. Four pages of line after line after line after line of gay, 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 gay. Your son is gay, 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 gay. When we met three years ago, James was single, and the interview came to an abrupt end as he was late for a date. I'm delighted that now James is happily loved up with his partner, Alan. This interview was recorded three years ago, and one of the benefits of lockdown has been finding the time to learn how to edit and finish this podcast. Interestingly, back then we talked about how there were rumours that Lewis Hamilton was about to take the knee at the US Grand Prix. And it's interesting that three years on, Formula One is still grappling with Black Lives Matter. Please be aware that this podcast involves bad language and themes of an adult nature. So, uh, James, thanks very much for coming to talk to me. Thank you. I'm delighted. What a um, great project. Uh, I hope that it's going to um, prove to be of some use to some people. I suppose by way of introductions, we should probably explain to people, for the very few people in the community that don't know who you are... Oh, please. Um, <laughs> ..who you are. So you're um, the author of two books. Uh, your first book was called Out in the Army. Mm-hmm. And how long ago did that come out? Um, not that I'm counting, but it's four years, six months, 21 days. No, it was uh, in... Um, 2013, which, which, Christ, it is actually four and a half years ago, yeah. And then you followed up more recently with another book, which came out this year, um, your Something for the Weekend book, The Insight into the uh, Chemsex Underworld, um, which has been very well received. Are there, are there plans for any more books at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope so. But uh, as I said to my editor recently, uh, you know, Hale's Comet comes around probably quicker than my books. So... Um, and actually, in between the first and second book, I pitched a few to Ian Dale, my publisher, and he said no to all of them. Um, and it's quite, it's quite cutting to get that. You know, you come up with something and you, you spend a, a week developing something on paper because you don't want to waste anybody's time, and then they just come back and say, no, it's not for me. And they, they sometimes say that to you in a text message 30 seconds after you've sent a really long email. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite annoying. But, you know, it proves that if you, if you think uh, and you try and you try and you try and, the, you know, J.K. Rowling got knocked back, I think it's 42 times before someone took a punt on her. You know, sometimes you do get a, a good idea. Like podcasts, thinking of things to do on there. I mean, you know, I spend my life looking through the podcast thing on what can I listen to in the bath tonight? And I spend more time looking for a decent podcast than I actually do listening to. What, what podcast do you listen to? Are you listen to any at the moment? Homo Sapien, Will Young and yeah. Christopher Sweeney's. Which you featured fairly, on recently. Oh, yeah, it's fairly self-indulgently, but... Um, yeah, I recorded it quite some time ago, just at the beginning of this year, actually, and I had no idea about when it was going to be released, and they were, I think, at that point quite unsure too. So really bizarrely, I spent, I did a, you know, an interview with Will and Chris, which was great, and I have to say, 
Will Young is wonderful in person. I've never met him before. I, you know, you have some ideas about what people might be like, and I've been a huge fan of his forever. Uh, and when he came and met me, and he spent two hours talking about me and my time in the army, and he knew everything. He'd really done his reading. He was really nice, genuinely really nice. Anyway. Uh, um, I've met him, but not in quite such great circumstances. Yeah. I bumped into him at a petrol station oh, did you? <laughs> and asked for a selfie because I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. Um, and he very kindly obliged. We talked about Border Terriers. and um, oh, Did you actually? Yeah, because I, I was just about to get a dog, and so he very kindly sort of shared his stories about his dog with me. See, he's just a delightful person. We, got, we were talking about... We're talking about Shadow Lounge and everything. And he's like, oh, we better do the interview now. So, yeah, I'm listening to that anyway. Homo sapien. I like Dan Snow's um, history hit. Right. It's really good. I also like the um, Formula One BBC podcast, really boring. Um, You're yeah. a big F1 fan, though. I see that on social media, a big follower. Yeah, I love Formula One. Actually, I think there's something coming up that's going to actually change the world. There's talk that Lewis Hamilton might take a knee during the anthem at the American Grand Prix. Oh, is North. that right? And, you know... That's, that's massive, because yeah. when you look at the the people who run F1, they're all white, you know. Total Wolf, which is, you know, Lewis's manager at Mercedes, has said some words today that might might suggest that he would prefer Lewis not to do that. And then you think of what you've got, actually, is a black man in the middle of all these white people saying, perhaps, Lewis, you shouldn't take an e-draw in the national anthem because it might be, you know, might cause us all a bit of a headache. Yeah. I hope to God Lewis does it, because it's such an important thing. Yeah, and, I agree. Uh, I think you will. I am um, the the Homo Sapiens podcast. I really like. And tell you why I really like it is, and that's part part of the reason listening to podcasts has prompted me to do this. In that I realised actually that I'm quite ignorant when it comes to the LGBT community issues, and it's kind of quite nice to hear them interviewing people uh, like Peter Tatchell, uh, you know, and getting stories um, like that. And I, I enjoy that podcast. And the other one I like is Walking the Dog. I don't know if you've heard that no, one. No, no. Really simple concept where um, a, a journalist goes for a walk with various celebrities walking the dogs and they just they just chew the cud for for an hour and it's just a really great sort of conversation and it's definitely worth a listen really good really good so you're now 30 mm. um born in 1987 on the first day of that glorious year <laughs> uh in north wales youngest of three uh kids you're i think youngest by a few years aren't you your yeah. sister is what 10 years older than yeah. you yeah oh good well done your brother's how much older than you 12 years right so the gap is sort of 10 years between you and the next one and um you kind of grew up uh, mainly with your mum didn't you that was the situation but with your, with your stepdad phil well, I mean, it's an interesting one, actually, because dad, my dad was around for um, the first 13 years of my life. I mean, my parents broke up. I remember it was the last day of year seven, and they purposely waited to tell me until, like, school. So, you know, I was six weeks off to deal with it. Um, and dad then, you know, took a slight step back in my life, albeit, albeit that he was still in the village. But the problem was dad, dad's drinking went from being an annoyance to my mother on a, on a sort of weekly basis to um, his poor uh, main focus so you know he became an alcoholic and uh, so yeah I suppose at the age of 13 he sort of drifted away from me in a daily sense and um, Phil my stepfather had come in uh, at that point. And by the age of 13 you you hadn't really sort of recognised I don't think at that point from your book anyway that you were gay or having gay feelings so your, your dad wouldn't have known at that stage about it does does your dad know now that you're gay because I know that he suffers from from ill health, doesn't he? And, um... Well, yeah. And an interesting thing is that actually, so that, you know, the, the story where dad is, at the age of sixteen, I left North Wales to join the army, 
and the and 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 the weekly or sort of every through every few days that I would go and see my dad disappeared for him. So that's sort of not so constant, but you know, fairly regular pattern of having a son around the village, just popping in, seeing if he's all right. Went because I joined the army, and, I, and still to this day, I very rarely go home. Maybe three times a year of that. Um, he became uh, lonely in the sense of being a family. He didn't have any family uh, and drank a lot and a lot and a lot. And eventually when I was, uh, God, I can't remember, 19? Yes, yeah, so a couple of years later, at the age of 19, I had a phone call in the army of my sister to say, got some bad news. Uh, and I thought I was to say that he, was, that he was dead, to be honest, but he had um, been found in his flat and he drank in so much that he basically gone into a coma. Um, there was a lack of vitamin, a certain vitamin, I'm not sure which one, but, but it basically caused a, a, massive, a massive event in his, in his brain that um, they, they didn't think he was going to pull through. He was in a coma for some time, actually. And when he came out of the coma, he had lost 10 years of his life in terms of memory and to, to this day retains information for about three minutes right uh, in, in a short thing so so situation situations like you know oh dad do you remember when we, went to, when we went to butlins when i was 10 he can he can have a conversation with you about it. he knows that so all those things that are in your mind because it's, it's you so you know you're not you're not going to remember your mother's name you know things like that but things like what were, what were you doing this morning dad what did you get up to this morning he has absolutely no idea um so that so that's interesting but at the point i was going to make me being gay, which is something uh, he learned sometime even after falling ill. So when he was in his care home and, and when I came out, because when he fell ill, I wasn't out to my family, by the way. Um, a couple of years later, when I fell in love with, with, with my partner and I started to tell the family that I was gay, um, we, we told my dad, and I say we, I say me and my sister, Liza, and he retained that information. So right. when I see him today, he will say something like, did you ever get another fella? But it's like, yeah, thanks, Dad, no. Um, not yet, anyway. And I've been single for three years now. Um, so it's quite interesting how things like, you know, my son, I will never forget anything about my son. I remember that he was in the army, remember this. He do, he also on that is, is that I'm gay. And when I've spoken to my mum about what Dad's childhood was, Dad grew up in, in Liverpool in the 70s, and he was a bit of a tow rag. Well, he grew up in the 60s, but he was a bit of a, bit of a villain, actually, in the 70s, and he went to jail for some time for being a... I don't know, I think he was a thief. Um, I just used to steal things, and he was part of a gang that did that. And um, Dad said, but, but Mum said, but he always had, he always had gay friends. Like, he always, it was a, Dad, right. Dad wasn't, you know, the kind of thug who didn't like gay guys. He was actually quite an open-minded fellow. And so, you know, just things that you learn about your parents later in life. Did, Interesting. Do you remember when you actually told your dad that you were gay? Do you actually remember that conversation you had or, or whether it was someone else that told him? Do you remember? Yeah, I actually sent my sister in to do the dirty work for did me. Did you? Yeah, and, he, and she did. And then I saw him and he was asking, you know, hey, you got a boyfriend and all this, and he was fine. And then actually Tom, who was my boyfriend and, you know, quite, quite established in my life, uh, spent a considerable amount of time with Tom, he would come with me to visit my dad. Right. And... You know, he would. Dad would talk to Tom like he would talk to any of Liza's boyfriends when, when I was younger. Um, so yeah, he was very much. But the thing is, uh, and I, I guess where we're heading with, that, with with this conversation is, I didn't come out to my dad, in a sense, 
oh god, I've got to tell my dad something about me, because dad was in a care home and it was actually very vulnerable. And I, the, the roles have reversed, yeah. actually. So instead of him being the dad, and it, it's actually the other way around. You know, last, last year I had to sit my dad down and tell him that his brother had passed away. And it, yeah. it dawned upon me that I was the dad in this relationship now, and it was actually a role re reversal. That, that pressure of coming out to a dad actually was on to my stepfather's sure. shoulders or direction. Anyway. Which, I'll, which I'll come on to in a moment. I was just interested because the, the question that everybody always asks gay people is, when did you know, when did you begin to suspect you were gay? Um, reading from your book, you sort of talked about the fact you had this experience, um, not of a sexual nature, but the similar age guy when you were about 14, chap, I think went by the name Aaron, I think mm. that was a real name or not, but... Um, and you kind of sensed at that age that there was something more than just liking being in his company because he was a nice guy and there was some sort of physical attraction. Was that kind of the start of it, do you think? Or do you look back now and think you knew earlier or...? I think, upon reflection, if I'm really honest, I think I did know earlier, but... Um... But it, 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 was, it was only in, a, in an affectionate sense. The truth, the, the truth about Aaron actually is, I think there was nothing overly sexual about, you know, two 14-year-olds realising that they've got some sort of feeling for each other. There was a little bit more than that. There was a little bit of, you know, touching and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but that was about it. And the interesting thing with Aaron... Uh, so, yeah, so when I was 14 and 15, we used to have these exchanges... And I literally used to, like, my heart would be racing out of my chest because he'd, like, said something. That like, was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I want to die. It's unbelievable. In a good way. Yeah. Um, but he never really had proper ownership of, of it. Yeah. I'm not saying he was just teasing me because he definitely wasn't. Yeah. But he, he, you know, he never really would say, hey, we're both gay, aren't we? He just wouldn't say that. You know, three years later... When I was 18, I was sat on my horse outside horse guards and a guy from my right just looked up and went, James. And I looked over, which you're not supposed to do when you're, you're sat there <laughs> and on, on your horse. I was like, oh my God, Aaron, oh my God. I said, I can't really talk to you right now, but uh, give me an hour uh, and, and I will be, just come back and I'll, be, I'll come and talk to you. And we went out later that night into Soho and kind of made up for, for, for like, lost time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, obviously, growing up in, in North Wales, not sort of cosmopolitan London, Manchester or Brighton, um, did you know anybody that was gay? No, and you know what? Oh, God, isn't it? It's such... It's so bad that even when I was told this, I didn't even think it was bad, but... I remember um, my mother played for a dance team and I would go along some Thursdays to dance with mum, surrounded by loads of women, Christ. And they would play this team once a year, uh, of a rival pub from another village in Wrexham. And there would be this gay guy who was there with, with his team. And no, they never, never got any stick or mum would never say anything sort of derogatory, but she'd just say, he's funny that one, mm. watch him, you know. And which I had no idea what that meant when I was say, 12. Yeah. But when I was 14, I did know what that meant. Uh, and there was something I kind of like, I didn't fancy him, but there was just kind of wanted to sort of talk to him, you know? Uh, I never did. I never could. But um, that was literally the extent to my access to difference. I was in, in my school of 800 people, there was nobody who was at least out uh, yeah. at the time. Um, I mean, I was, I was the same, and I, I was an old boys Catholic school, and people all say to me, oh, crikey, must have been surrounded by loads of gay people. But 
back in the 90s, early 90s when I was there, no one would have dared say I'm gay. Everybody mm-hmm. had their suspicions, which, you know, passage of time proved to be right, but you would not like today where you get kids saying, oh, yeah, no, I came out of school when I was 13 and no one gave me monkeys. Um, I, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Literally in the last couple of weeks. Oh, that's right. We've just had an intern at Emerald Life where I work. And um, Ollie, 16, came out in school at the age of 13. And I was just like... I'm just absolutely astonished. It's, it's flabbergasting, isn't yeah. it? I mean, for me, Great, I feel no one would have dared come out at my school because there would have been, you know, the bullying and it would be, it'd have been terrible. Yeah. But, I mean, how amazing that now, um, what sort of 20, 25 years on from when I was at school, you get stories like that about people saying, yeah, no, actually coming out was just not an issue. No one really cared about it. And I think it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's great. And a lot of work's been done by a lot of great organisations yeah. to, to sort of facilitate that. But it's still, oh my God, brilliantly brave that a kid can do that because I don't care what anybody says, coming out, whether you're 30 or 13, there still is the trauma of sitting down with your loved, your nearest and dearest and saying, I am different. Oh, it's, it's, it's the most traumatic thing I've ever done. Coming out to my parents, in fact, coming out full stop, I think, is, is probably still to this day the most traumatic experience I've had in my sort of 45 years. And, you know, I mean... I don't know the ins and outs of your job on a daily basis, mm. but you must have had some challenging experiences in your life. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, yeah. And I've seen a lot of things and done a lot of things in my life, but I still say that telling my family, even though I knew that the reaction ultimately was going to be, we love you, whatever, it still was just it was horrendous. I mean, I absolutely hate it. It sort of sends a shiver down my spine looking back at it now. Mm. Um, and I kind of had it easy because I knew deep down that there was only going to be ever a positive reaction. But yes, so you did. Even when you told your parents, you yeah. still thought at the end. At, at the end of this, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, I knew. I knew that it was going to be okay. Yeah. But it was just that having to tell people that the person they thought that you were that you were different to the way that sort of thought you were. Really, um, it's kind of been difficult to explain I guess unless you know could have been through the process uh, well, but um, I hear stories I mean I hear, I hear stories about you know public figures who are not are not out and you know not be on my shoulders to criticise and Christ almighty I you know have made that mistake of criticising people for not coming out before now and quite rightly been told I was naughty to do so and, yeah. I, and I do on the long, long, longevity of time I realise that but you know I know there's people who are literally I'm just waiting for my parents to die and then I will yeah. come out I'm thinking Jesus, you know. I mean, I, I couldn't have I couldn't have done that sort of thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to. I don't know. I'd have spent a whole life regret. I think if I thought my parents never found out who I really was. Yeah, I, um, I think I would be the same. And and then more than that, I think, you know. You know, you know. I was actually I was I was talking to somebody who served in the Royal Air Force as well recently, and she said her only regret in life. I was talking to an LGBT pensioner group in Wandsworth, and because they're the kind of gigs I get. Um, <laughs> about my new book, and she said her only regret in life was that she didn't come out until she was in her 50s, even though she knew she was, she was, she was gay when she was in her teens. But of course, obviously, there's different pressures, different yeah. times. But she said, I regret because all the fun I could have had. And, you know, now I'm in my 70s, it's like, hmm. Well, it's interesting, because what prompted me to come out, I mean, it was, a, it was building up to a sort of situation, not dissimilar from what you were experiencing, where you were kind of going through a bit of a mental turmoil and it was taking its toll on you. I was going through the same sort of thing. But I got a lift home one evening from a colleague, and um, he was gay, and he said to me in the car, 
we were talking about it. He didn't know. I mean, I wasn't even out. And he said, uh, one of my biggest regrets in life, he said, I'm now, I can't remember what he said, sort of mid-40s or 50s or something like that. My biggest regret in life is I didn't do this 10, 20 years ago. All, all that opportunity, all that fun I could have been having, and instead I sort of, you know, tried to keep it hidden. And it just made me think, you know what, this is, this is getting a bit silly now. You know, I'm, I'm getting depressed about the situation. Everybody else is having relationships, which I can't have, because obviously I can't have a relationship with, with, with a man, because then everybody would know I was gay. And I just kind of thought, you know what, I've got to kind of grapple with this now. Um, and that's kind of what prompted me to sort of start making, you know, my disclosures to, to sort of family and friends. But uh, it kind of just built up and I sort of had to deal with it. Well, I often wonder about people who know before you do or, you know, people who know before the subject does. And the reason why that is, I was speaking to a school teacher friend of mine some weeks ago ahead of me going to a school to talk about something. And, you know, he said, of course, you know, we, we've, got, we've got plenty of gay students in our school, but, you know, sometimes they're not sure themselves. And you think, well, what are you actually saying? And, and then I think back to my last day in secondary school and my form tutor, Rob Ransom... I, I call him Rob these days because he actually, you know, when I see him, he's a bit of a mate now. Yeah. <laughs> Odd that that happens, isn't it? But um, he wrote in my leaving book and he'd known me for five years at the, up until this point. So he'd never ever said this, these, this line to me in person, which he could, he could have at any point. He wrote in my leaving book, James, always be yourself. And I was like, hmm. I think he was saying, you know, at some point soon, you're going to have a conversation with yourself about identity, I feel, and, and, and you should be yourself. I feel that's what he was saying. Um, and like the three boys in the army, when I, when I do eventually yeah. come out at the age of 18, it was actually those who led the agenda because they decided among the three of them that there was something wrong with me that I wasn't quite telling them or being honest with them about. So they, you know, sat me down and, you know, sort of got it out of me. Yeah, well, my sister pretty much did the same thing with me because she sort of said, you know, what's going on? Because you don't seem, you don't seem happy, you don't seem yourself. Um, I was kind of going out quite a bit and drinking quite a bit and she kind of just suspected there was something wrong. She never said to me, she never asked me if I was gay, but she basically made it clear that she knew that I wasn't, didn't appear to be happy. I mean, she was right. I mean, I was going through that stage where I think I'd come to terms with it myself but it was just that question of how to take the next step and she kind of recognised that I wasn't doing a very good job of, of kind of coming to terms with it. I mean, in terms of... I mean, you obviously didn't know any gay people, but, um, I mean, what? how did you think that gay people were perceived? When you're kind of growing up and you're thinking, I think I might be gay, do you think that was a good thing, bad thing, or...? I thought it was awful. It was horrific. It was horrific. And, um, um, crazily, two years ago... My local hometown university gave me an honorary degree. Yeah. And when I went to collect it, I um, I thanked them obviously, but I made a point. The point of my sort of speech and Christ, they didn't want a quick speech. I mean, they, they, it was six months in the planning this event, but they were like, "You'll be invited to speak, and you know, maybe twenty minutes will be good." I'm like, well, what am I going to talk about for twenty minutes? For Christ's sake! Um, and it was a jam-packed hall full of people graduating and all their families. It's probably the biggest audience I've ever, sp- I've ever spoken to in, in in a live sense. And the point of what I said was, growing up on these streets, there is, you know, there's, there's, only, there's only three big things in Wrexham in terms of public, you know, influence-holding power. Yeah. And it's the local university, Glyndwr. It is, randomly, Kellogg's that have a base there. Really, you know, biggest employer. Yeah. And probably Wrexham Football Club. Yeah. So Wrexham, they're your three big hitters. 
those three organisations are now coming together as one because the Vice Chancellor at Glyndor um, operates like that, and and and, and Glyndor now owns Wrexham's football, Wrexham, Wrexham football club. Right. So, anyway, um, and I and I said that actually, this, you know, giving me an honorary degree because of you know work in the LGBT community that I've done and all the press that you've put out there about this in the, in the local community is massive because when I was 11 there was zero in mm. terms of gay people representation on the streets of Wrexham and when I say that I mean it there was zero nothing not nothing no youth group no stonewall posters section 28 was still working then yeah so not a, nothing I mean like zero nothing and then you know f- skip forward uh, to where we were in when I got that 2015 you know, it made the front page of the local newspaper, yeah. and it was known. And I just, and I think, not that it's me, but the, just the, the the message behind giving a, giving somebody a, a an award because they're gay and what they did about that is a great message that will land and change some little boy in Rex's life, maybe, and or, it's, at, and, or at least. And it's all happened in such a a short period of time because I mean, when I was dealing with coming out, which is what now sort of fifteen, just beyond fifteen years ago. There was still the fact that it was there was nothing positive about being gay in the media. It was the the celebrities were sort of ultra camp on TV and were sort of subject to ridicule. It was all about you know if you're if you're gay you're going to get AIDS. There there was nothing absolutely nothing cool about being gay. And so you, the last thing anybody would have wanted would have been to be gay, mm-hmm. which is why I used to feel I get so annoyed when people say, oh you know people choose to be gay. I'm thinking. You know, who on who on earth in their right mind would choose to be gay? I mean, I suppose now that maybe they might do, but um, certainly back when I was dealing with the issues of coming out, I mean, it was just absurd to say that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think you know when I do eventually tell my mum I'm gay in 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 my story, she responds the way she does because in her mind immediately, and I think anybody who lived through the 1980s, by the way, will, will and, and not in a cosmopolitan yeah place, uh, and this of course is 2005, so you know it's a bit it's a bit of a different time. The first thing Mum thought when I told her I, I, I'm, I'm gay, uh, I don't have a girlfriend, I have a boyfriend, boom, AIDS, immediately. Yeah. You know, she, I, and I know that she did think that, she thought that. Um, and and, the, and the, we all know, we're, we're all growers, we know what this, you know, the real story is, even, even around HIV. You know, one in seven people in, in London are HIV positive. It's so much of my life is, 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 is in HIV these days that I don't even think anything of it. Yeah. Whereas when I go back to Wrexham, and, you know, I have conversations with my parents around many things. And because I'm involved in um, some HIV activism through work uh, I like to do, um, you know, it pops up in conversations sometimes with my mum. And the education that I have to provide her and, 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 and my stepdad, Phil, is... I'm, I'm, I'm just beyond flabbergasted. And yeah. it's not their fault. It's not their fault, really. Um, although you know we all can you know read up on things I suppose, but but in London, so the point I'm making here is, cosmopolitan life uh, is different to to rural yeah. living, and and yeah, you're right. There, there there was nothing positive when you came out in your setting, and there was absolutely nothing positive when I came out in my in mine. And I still think it holds true about the contrast between sort of cosmopolitan UK and, and sort of rural, because um, I think people who grow up in places like London where it's kind of no, no one even cares about your sexuality. You, you only have to go outside of the UK or part of the UK to go to the rural parts to realise that actually there's still issues about people sort of having homophobic views. I mean, it's not, it's not changed across the whole country. It's not a better place all over the place now. No, it's not. And, you know, 
a few minutes ago I said, you know, recently I, I wasn't... Recently I said something about Colin Jackson coming out. I um, have been away and I've done some reading and I, and I now have a little bit of a different outlook and understanding of the situation, although I, uh, I think Munro Berghoff is right when she says, you know, what do white men really know about growing up as a black person, you know? Mm. And, I, and so, you know, the background on Colin Jackson was when he came out about a month ago, I said on Twitter, I uh, would have really appreciated Colin Jackson to come out a little while ago. Yeah. Or, you know, thanks for coming out once the fight's done. I mean, it was a bit of a flippant comment I made. And quite rightly, I was, um, I was told by a, a number of people that I was a bit of a dick for doing that. Yeah. And, um, and the cutting, uh, the landing message was, you know, what, do you, what could you possibly know about growing up as a black person who's gay? Do you know anything about that? And, and the answer was no. So um, I, spoke to, I spoke to a friend and said, I don't know where I am on this. What should I do? Uh, and he said, well, don't just say you're sorry. Go away and do some reading and, and, and you know, learn a little bit. And actually, I have. I've just read a really, really good book. And um, that, that really looks at that and talks about, you know, growing up black and different. And, you know, anyway, and, yeah, kind of take that back. I regret saying that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I took issue with you for a different reason, which is I just think that um, it's such a, you know, as I've said already, such a difficult thing that I don't think you can actually tell people when they should come out because ultimately it's got to be a sort of personal decision and I think sometimes people just assume that because they're um, you know well known or in the public eye they have a great responsibility towards a sort of LGBT community and I just think that you know he's no different from anybody else he had to grapple with it all you've got to bear in mind what his circumstances were and I just think it's I don't think you can ever really say when anybody should come out until you know they're absolutely ready and I agree so Colin Jackson I'm really sorry um, so you obviously join up um, as an army cadet, age 16. Um, by that stage, I'm assuming that you kind of start beginning to recognise that, you know, you, you, you've got different feelings, that you are gay. Still, other than the sort of the Aaron situation, nothing had really happened as far as I could tell from, from your book. Is that right? Nothing's really moved on in terms of... Oh, absolutely. Of... No, I, that's zero. Nothing, nothing at all. And yes, that's right. I turn, I go in the army... Um... You dated, you, dated, you dated a girl or girls, didn't you? And you'd had a bit of a sexual foray, I think, with one of them. Is yeah, that right? yeah, you know, yeah. Um, oh, God, it's awful. And, you know, when, the, when, when Out in the Army, my first book came out, I talk about, you know, having a girlfriend called Kate and all this. And I spent so much time trying to disguise people's names in the book, throughout the book, um, that for, who, who were gay and that I'd been involved with various things. For some reason, I didn't give it one second to change Kate's name. <laughs> and I say something awful in the book, like, and uh, nothing, nothing to do with Kate either, but I said something like, yes, yeah, so, you know, I had this girlfriend called Kate, and I have to say, you know, sex was just, I just hated it. It, it just really wasn't for me. Yeah. I mean, that's awful when she's, re she's sat in North Wales reading that, you know, she's a mother now, and she's like, oh, sex with me. I suspect awful. she's probably forgiven you. <laughs> Fucking hell. I was like, oh, my God, I really shouldn't have said that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah anyway, God. So, but, you know, the thing about Kate, though, the really funny thing about the situation, growing up in a little village in Wales, Kate's mother, Avon, who is a wonderful, wonderful person, happened to be the school nurse. And, you know, the school nurse in Wrexham covers all schools, all ages. Um, and I, I think, you know, there was that moment when, you know, you, you, as a six-year-old, I had to have my balls looked at by the school nurse for some reason. Uh, and it was Yvonne. So when I did start dating Kate, like when I was 14 and with sexual things and things like that, I think I remember actually saying to Kate, it's hilarious that your mum's seen my dick before me, before you. <laughs> Do you think now when you look back at that sort of sexual experience with her, was that... Um, 
I mean, was there any sort of physical attraction? Was it kind of all about keeping up a facade? Yeah, absolutely. Or? So I was actually in the Army Cadets, the youth organisation from the age of 13. And I've always knocked around with people who are slightly older than me. Yeah. Uh, my best friend's Matthew Kane. Um, and he, he will tell you he's 40. Um, <laughs> ask for a birth certificate, we give you that one, Ed. And, because uh, I know you're interviewing him. Um, but in an army cadet, it was true, I knocked around with 17 and 18 year olds. Yeah. I now think it's actually to do with the sort of coming to terms with being gay. And I had something about knocking around those lads that I really wanted to be with them. Yeah, I, I had the same experience, similar yeah. experience, yeah. Well, anyway, you know, knocking around with 18, 17 year olds, um, you, 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 you perhaps learn more about life when you're 13 and 14 than most. And uh, that, that led the way on, on wanting to have a girlfriend to then have sex and do these things that the boys were talking about. And that's what actually led the agenda. You, you, you talked in your book about how as you, as you sort of got older, you, you kind of do begin to recognise that you're gay and that you, you had no one to talk to about it. And you felt that even though you were very close to your mum, you couldn't talk to her about it. And you just sort of just talk in the book about how, and I think this probably resonated with a lot of people, how that was a very mentally difficult stage for you, kind of grappling with the fact that you were gay and not being able to um, speak to her. And I think at some stage in your book, you talked about the fact you sort of remember crying yourself asleep on one occasion, or maybe more than one occasion, once you realised that you, that, that you were gay. Well, yeah, and I think, you, you know, coming to terms with your sexuality regardless across the board is is, is um, a slow progress a slow process for some and a quicker process for others and it's traumatic that's the I mean we've talked about that's bottom line but um, my, the relationship I have with my mum even today is that I can tell her you know 99.9% of everything about me in yeah. my life you know there's still little tiny things I don't talk to her about well, well even after the most recent book well that's that's been literally <laughs> that is literally the most traumatic experience <laughs> of my life having to sit my mum down and say Yes, so I've just had a bit of a drug addiction issue. Yeah. It's going to come out in a book next year, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, that was um, another key moment in my life that I will put up there with coming out. But um, it just seemed it just seemed really odd in, in life that I had a relationship with my mum where I could talk to her about literally anything. But for whatever reason, in my mind, my sexuality was not one of them which I now know is because when I was 9, 10 and 11, I heard, I heard these key messages around um, sexuality, about them not being... Uh, and when Mum sat me down to give me that really awkward talk about things that happen to your body, mm. you know, at the age of about 13, I think that was, and she borrowed books off, like, other... my friends' mothers. It was awful. I mean, it was awful. But the conversation was about boys and girls. Yeah. Um, which has zero relevance to, to me. And um, I, I go, I've, I've gone a step further recently and, and said that, you know, how many, how many people alive today um, are living with health conditions that are, are down to the fact that they didn't have access to education about sexual health yeah. that was relevant to them? And that, and that is, I mean, unspeakable in terms of what the real consequences of Section 28 are. But not to say that that's what, you know, any, like my parents or anything, but the consequence of, of having a really awkward conversation uh, and, and that's stressful and having that memory and, and hearing what, you know, mum said about the gay guy in the dark team or just maybe passing a flippant comment about somebody on TV like Julian Clary. Yeah. It just builds up that, a picture in your mind that you can't talk about something. It's off limits. You shouldn't be doing that. It's taboo. And I think it just hurts that there was something about me that I would 
otherwise definitely go and talk to mum about do you think you're probably a better place to know this than me but now when sort of parents give their kids books like you know many of us have had from their parents or saying you know this is about relationship and sexual development all this sort of stuff do you think they are getting books now which talk about relationships between you know men and men and women and women do you think that's the, i mean is that changed fundamentally now or is it still do you think a situation where people are getting books about you know i think you're women? seeing a change particularly around the pcse side of education where you know you, you know the sort of the development side of education that happens in schools where you know kids are taught about you know things that happen in life that's changing to be more um universal and, and real and modern Certainly wasn't though when I was in school uh, at the beginning of this this new century, um, and yeah, I, I think there are organisations like Stonewall who've put resources in schools specifically uh, to deal with that. So I know full well that uh, you know there are there are resources from Stonewall available to introduce same sex relationships to children as young as four in yeah. an education environment. Which you know there's a wonderful book about two gay penguins in in New York. Um, zoo, which is called um, Tango for Two, or T and Tango, or two, oh, two for Tango. Oh God, please look that up and correct me, please, please. Then. It's like Tango for Two, and um, that that is a, that is a book. It's a true story about two gay penguins. Penguins are one of the a few animals where it's proven there are there there are gay penguins. Yeah. And anyway, there was there was some at New York Zoo a couple of years ago. Someone someone made a really nice kids book about it, and. Um, so, you know, I know there are resources that introduce the uh, concept of same-sex relationships really early in a young person's life. And, and then that, as, the, as that key stage development moves on, obviously that, that gets better and more appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, th- I think things have changed slightly, but there are still too many kids um, embarking on their lives ill-equipped of what it means to be um, a young gay man. Yeah. And, and actually, I'll tell you what, where I'm behind the curve, and we're behind the curve, is that actually a lot of kids these days don't even see words like gay and bi and straight. They're not, they don't want to be associated with a certain term. I remember, and this is awful, but I was in a nightclub a couple of years ago as a young single man, and there was this really hot guy, and he was another guy, uh, and I went over and started talking to them. And they were two young guys, 21, from, they were out, they were out of town, so they were in town from Oxford, and I went over and I asked them if they were gay. And they said, we don't really like to t- put a term on what we are, really. That's funny. Um, anyway, I took them both home. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, at least gay friendly at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You, you joined the... So you're in the army at 16. Um, you're, you're obviously you recognise you're gay. You met with some sort of homophobic um, sort of senior people in the army from the off. And that must have kind of convinced even more that you were just going to keep your sort of sexuality hidden. I mean, that wasn't exactly the best of starts, was it? You're right. So my first day in the army, my introduction to the army, if you like, was um, not the best in terms of, you know, the forward-thinking quality environment that you might want to be. Um, so on the first day, the guy who was running the uh, the basic training situation for me and my, and my colleagues got us all into a room to give us our welcome briefing and said, uh, and bear in mind, we were, we were 16 at yeah. this time, um, at this point, there's there's uh, a couple of rules you've got to abide by while you're here with me. First rule is always be on time. He said. Second rule is always have the right uh, the correct equipment. He said. If you follow those first two rules, really we can't go wrong. And then the third rule was don't bully anybody. 
which I thought was promising, but interesting. That was less important to, to, to turning up on time. <laughs> and the, the final rule was, don't come out, and I, and I quote, if you're a faggot, because I can't stand faggots. And he didn't say it in a way that was, this is just for kicks and giggles, I'm yeah. just trying to make you all comfortable on your first day in this really, really stressful new job of yours. He was being deadly serious. It was like, he put the same impetus on the, on the fourth rule as he did on the first rule. You know, he just... That was it. But, th that, that, but that was 2003, and it was only three years after the law had changed around, you know, being gay in the military. Um, did you ever think at that stage, see, at the beginning of your army career, age 16, did you ever think there would ever be a stage where you'd be out about your sexuality at, uh, at work? Well, yeah. So I, I approached the organisation um, with an open mind. These are terms I didn't even know when I was 16. But a bit of me thought... You know, oh God, here I am about to. Oh, by the way, I thought I was literally the coolest kid in Wrexham getting a job in the army at the age of 16 before I'd even sat an exam in school. Yeah. And to have that letter, guaranteed offer of employment from the British Army, in the February, my exams were not beginning until the May, just took a massive weight off my shoulders. Do you think I revised one <laughs> minute? But um, back to him and that message, and in 2003, and what it did to me, it was, um, in real terms... And since, you know, somebody from the army um, a couple of years ago when this, when, I, when this came out in my book, that this was what was said to me by the army on the first day, someone said, well, that wasn't the army, that was, that, was, that was one person in the army. Well, sorry, but, you know, in my job, if I say something during working hours to a client or a colleague, you know, that's my company. Well, and also, it doesn't matter, that, that was the voice and the message that you were hearing, mm. so it doesn't matter whether it was just individual view or not. And the actual knock-on effect of that, in real terms, was I sat there... Uh, and thought to myself, um, I wonder if then maybe this will change the situation and I won't be gay. Um, and, you know, at that point, st stood around with 48 or the 16-year-olds, and by the way, the army recruits from the darkest corners of this country, mm. and it really does. Um, there was a great diversity in, in us as people from, you know, the, 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 the streets of Glasgow right through to people who'd come from private schools and whatever. Anyway, um... I thought I could really do without being gay, actually, looking at this current situation I'm in. And perhaps, you know, by the time the army have invested all this money and training in me, that'll be the case. Yeah. What, what I um, want to ask you about is that one of the things that I was kind of a bit concerned about when I was sort of coming to tell people that I was gay was that I kind of felt that people had me pigeonholed. Everyone just had assumed I was straight. Um, and I was kind of a bit worried that when I told them that I was gay, they kind of would think... Or that you know he's been leading a double life, or he's been keeping certain aspects of himself from us. Now in the army, I would imagine that you kind of, I mean, the the, the circumstance you find yourself in with your colleagues must be kind of so intense, kind of living in each other's pockets. That did there come a point where you kind of thought to yourself, God, I can't, I can't reveal who I really am to them because that might affect the trust. I don't know. I mean, did it that, that cross your mind at all? Was that a concern? I think. After that event on that first day, actually, the pressures of basic training kicked in. And that's a very, um, that's, a, that's a tremendous amount of pressure. And, and actually, I didn't really have much time to consider who I might, you know, want to be while I was going through that process. What happened was, on the, on the completion of basic training, I then joined my regiment, the Household Cavalry, yeah. and find out that my first posting in the Army is going to be to central London at the age of 17. Yeah. Um, so the army send me down here um, and I settle into a room overlooking High Park 
on the seventh floor of, of Knightsbridge Barracks. And with it, you know, I'm introduced to the marvellous diversity of the real world and London. London in 2004, it was, you know, not that different to what it is today. Uh, it, was, it was a very diverse environment. And just on the first day, walking down the mall, which is the first thing I did, obviously, as a true royalist, I saw people holding hands, same-sex couples, and just thought to myself, I might be able to be who I, who I know I am, yeah. who I really am here. Something but, that, but that, you... had been, that had been missing for the previous period while I was in training. But still at that stage, no kind of sexual experiences with men other than what had happened with Aaron. Skirmishes. Then. Skirmishes. Um, still not out to anybody. Um, and you talked about how the first people you came out to were um, was on a night out, if I'm right, with three of your army friends who um, asked you if everything was okay because they're a bit concerned that you, you hadn't been yourself. And I think you told them that you... Which I think don't think you told them at that stage or immediately that you were gay, but um, I think one of your friends then actually directly asked the question, mm. didn't they? Dean did. He did directly go for the juggler. And um, the three boys are Jamie, Josh, and Dean. Dean is the only one of us who's now still serving in the military. Uh, what a wonderful career he's having. Um, Jamie and we're all uh, uh, and me, Dean and Josh are seventeen. We're all seventeen. Poor Jamie. Um, gone through like a midlife crisis and joined the army at the age of 25. Yeah. But has to hang around with a bunch of 17-year-olds because that's when you really should join the army. Um, Jamie was also part of my little group of, of, of friends. And what we were... Um, I, I turned 18 at this point, actually. So it was in the March 2005. I remember the day it happened because England were playing Wales in the, in the introduction of the Six Nations Championship that, that day. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Welsh, they're English. And um, they got me drunk because they wanted to have a conversation and the conversation went you know we know there's something wrong there's something different about you today than what what there was uh, six months ago and um we want to we want to know what it is and they asked me a range of things it could possibly be which you know they weren't the answers to uh, any of any of any of the actual issue and dean just came out with it and said okay is it because you're gay and it was the first time I'd ever been asked. And actually, I never woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to tell somebody today that I'm gay. Here I am at the end of my, my uh, journey. I'm about to do this. And it was actually a surprise to be asked. And I, and, and I just said, yes, that's it. I'm gay. Uh, and I've never really known who to tell or what, what I should say. Do you, do you think if he hadn't asked you that question directly, would, would you have volunteered it that night do you think no or, absolutely not would it, would it have been some time after that do you think <laughs> well i don't know and actually when thinking about the process it was very quick to come off my tongue oh yeah that's it i was aware that london was clearly a hub for gay men and i knew there was a street in soho where there were five gay bars yeah i'd never been to them but i knew they were there um D D Dean and I used to go out to Soho to a particular venue uh, about once a week um, and, and we'd walk past gay bars and Dean would say, ooh, there's a gay bar there, look. And so, I, you know, I was completely aware there was a culture on, on, the, on, the, on the doorstep of where I was. So I don't think it would have been long. 
and also, you know, I was, I was living in Knightsbridge, very close to Hyde Park. Yeah. I just knew there was gay everywhere around me, and um, the moment I came out, I felt immediately better about it. That's what I was going to say. I mean, presumably, when you're able to tell somebody for the very first time, and you're telling your mates, that must have been an, an almighty relief, wasn't it? It was. It was, in the instance, because the moment I told them, I thought I might be faced with three faces of, of not very pleasant expressions. Yeah. But no, Jamie stood up, gave me a big hug. Dean turned around to Josh and said, well, that's uh, 20 quid you owe me, mate. Um, which I was like, oh, okay. We've had a discussion about this, other boys. Um, uh, and, and, and in the immediate sense, it was actually all right. What, apparently, oh, by the way, it was the fact that I had two McFly posters on my wall in my barracks, in my room, in the barracks. I mean, one, one might have been okay. Well, we'll give him that. You know, he's fine. He's like, he's like, he likes McFly. He's got a poster. Oh, I'm not so sure they about were like that. two <laughs> McFly posters. I think if I'd seen one McFly poster, I think I'd have added my suspicions. But, but, um, <laughs> but it's funny because you said in, you said that um, one of your friends, I think, of the three of them, said that he'd had his suspicions. And was that what because of the, because of that poster? Yeah, that's right. They were like, James is a bit different, isn't he? And they must have noticed as well that. We're all in London, and you know the boys are going out and like literally giving the postcodes of where you can go and have sex with girls. You know, <laughs> like if you go there, you can have sex with girls. That's like forty quid. Um, the, this is the kind of conversations that were that were happening all around me, and I and I just wasn't involved in them. Um, and I think I think they just began to sort of uh, thinking, well, you know, why is James a bit different? James is different, isn't he? James has got two posters of that boy band on his wall. <laughs> James is very, very much a fan of McFly. <laughs> I actually think that did gen- genuinely lead the way to their suspicions. And I, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, Jamie was 25 and he, he'd had He's a life before on. he joined the yeah, army. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, he just knew. He said he knew the moment he met me six months earlier. Uh, Jamie is, well, the three boys are my... Um, Still my best friends. We, we all went to Josh's wedding recently, and then yeah. we all went to Dean's surprise 30th birthday recently, which my parents nice. were there for. God. Um, and, yeah, we're still close. I think Jamie knew, and Jamie then maybe had a word with the other boys yeah. to see if they knew anything, and it went from there. And and you didn't have to go through the trauma of, of outing yourself to the rest of the regiment because it seems <laughs> that, that they did that for you by the, pretty much like the next day, hadn't they? The word yeah. had got out that you you were gay. Yeah, they essentially put a press release out for the whole army. <laughs> um, no, they... Yeah, I mean, I love them, but, you know, they did gossip. And when I did go to work on the Monday morning, which I knew would be the case, um, I, I, I was dealing with... Uh, the whole regiment knowing who I was mm. immediately. And remember, I'm very early on in my career at this point. You know, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to be the great man. You're not yeah. supposed to just jump out of your, you know, basic training experience into the into the regiment as a, as a name. That comes with time. Um, but that, not for me. I went to work on a Monday morning and literally in my little micro community in Hyde Park Barracks, everybody knew. Everybody but that, knew that was probably a good thing there, wasn't it? I mean, you, you didn't have to go through that sort of... I don't know, outing yourself to people or whatever. It's kind of just kind of happened, really. Yes, but I can't tell you how stressful it was. And I didn't, wasn't equipped to, like, deal with what I was being... So if you can imagine, on the Saturday morning when I woke up, I had no intentions of having a conversation with somebody and saying for the first time in my life I was gay. Yeah. Nothing. And then Just didn't all... even know it was going to happen that day. And then, you know, we went and watched Wales beat England and got really drunk. And by the time we got home back to the barracks that night, three people knew I was gay. Two, well, a day later, 24 hours later, that had then spread to 300 people. Yeah. And I had to deal with questions from all of them who wanted to just 
accessed something that they'd never accessed before. And they, I was being asked conversations like, how do you know you're gay? What was the, what was the first, how, how many, do you sleep with men often? I mean, the questions ranged from, when did you choose to be gay? Which yeah. is a question that, you know, we, we've already vented a frustration about. To, well, how does it work anyway? M- most of it, though, the answer to the question. From, from, from your book, I got the impression that it didn't sound like it was too malicious. It was more, uh, more a case of curiosity. So it wasn't as though you kind of suffered a backlash from people or there was sort of... Sort of homophobic undertones. It was kind of more sort of, a, a sort of fascination probably with a world that was a bit unknown to them. Yeah, and I think it's right to point out as well that I now know it wasn't, it wasn't bullying. I wasn't being asked or, or, or spoken to in, in a derogatory sense. These were uh, a group of soldiers who had not had access in their microenvironment of a gay man. Yeah. In fact, of 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 a very much diversity period. So, when there was one of their own, an eighteen-year-old soldier in the middle of them all, you know, mucking out the stables, riding the horses, cleaning his kit, whatever, they they could just ask anything. In a very in in, in long uh, after this, uh, six months after this, you know, just in matter of fact terms, like, oh, you know, I've got a cousin coming out. You know, you've got any advice I could pass on? Great, happy to do that. But back then, it, immediately, it was like, you know, how do you know you're gay? And what, how does it work? Yeah. And what, what is, is, it, is anybody else that you're gay? You know, things like that. It's a bit gossipy, a bit intrusive is a word I would use. It was yeah. very intrusive. Suddenly become very public from something that had been so very private. And it was universal across the board as well. I mean, I literally, literally, from, you know, the colonel, maybe not the colonel, but the major yeah. of my squadron, down to the to my colleague who's just out of basic training, they all wanted a piece of me that day. Yeah, and that went on for a few weeks. And the, the truth about being a ceremonial soldier in London, which is often overlooked, nobody even thinks that it's it could be possibly a stressful position to be in, is that it's so hard work. It's really yeah. really hard work. You've got horses to look after constantly. You've got the pressures, the responsibility, and the honour of. Um, Escort and Queen on state occasions, um, which you've got to be on point for. Yeah, uh, you don't come second on that one. And then on top of that, you know, as an eighteen-year-old, I had initially the problem around me coming out in that environment and suddenly having to deal with all that. But then afterwards, when that started to die down, a new thing came in, which was actually just being an eighteen-year-old gay guy in London. Well, I was going to say that was kind of the next stage for you, wasn't it? That here you are open with your friends and, and colleagues, London at your doorstep. You, you, you then had your experience of the London gay scene. You, I think you experienced your first boyfriend. And that, I mean, that sounds like it was a pretty crazy time at, the st- at that stage. Yes, it certainly was. Um, yeah, coming out, 18, traumatic. But then the next thing then is fun. being... being um, being 18 in London, and, and I got I got swept up on 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 the scene. I became um, a member of the gay scene in Lo- in London, in Soho, on a nightly basis. And it sounds as though you did pretty much exhaust it because you talked about uh, most people sort of takes a while to exhaust Soho before they move on to Vauxhall. But you, you exhausted <laughs> Soho fairly quickly before you then moved on to Vauxhall. Not long after. It's a very diplomatic way to say I was being a bit of a slut Ed that's fine but okay I can do that Um, no the truth was little did I know that you know being an 18 year old soldier in Soho um, is 
quite a popular position to be in. Yeah. I mean, it just is. And holy crap, did I have fun. Like, I did. Really, really. Oh, my God, I'd go back tomorrow if I could. Um, but uh, <laughs> I did, I had fun. And, but you know what I also had? And, uh, and I think it was part of the fascination as well. I had um, a new best mate from my... Um, in my army situation, which was a, um, a very attractive young man called Michael. Yeah. Michael became my uh, best man later in my life, and uh, to this day, very good, very good friend. He's got a beautiful young family down in South London, and he's now a train driver for Southern Train. Always on bloody strike. But back when he was 18, uh, back when we were 18, me and Michael used to um, hit GAY every night of our lives. He was straight, straight guy. But he loved it. He just loved being in that environment. Very much of a relaxed environment. You know, well, of course, but it's what gay pals are so, so you know, renowned yeah. for. And, um, you know, that grew slightly from just me and Michael going to actually a small gang of young soldiers going. And basically, I used to turn up GAY on a Friday night with like six soldiers in tow. We wouldn't have to queue up. We literally walked into the place and had a really good time. <laughs> I mean, it just like a really good time. And that was a constant for maybe two years. Um, but you, but at this stage, because you, you go back home, I think for Christmas of two thousand and five. So how old are you then? You're about to turn twenty. Uh, I'm about to turn nineteen. Um, and still, you're only out to work, people. Not out to anybody at home. Not out to family. And you had two weeks leave, didn't you? Then staying back at home, but you didn't come out then, did you? To to your mum. Yeah, I think I think it was Easter time, or right. it was. It was a little after Christmas because actually, when I come out to family, I'm 19. I'm into I'm into my 19 year by some 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 months. Um, anyway, while I'm home, uh, or or just before I get on the train, I borrow my friend's laptop because it was 2005, and officially <laughs> you no, know, it was 2006, and not nobody had a had a computer. And I go on uh, gaydar.com. I had a great gaydar profile, and I used to meet people all the time. Um, but isn't it it's incredible how you just have that instant now on your phone where you can go meet somebody? Where back then it was like, yeah. you know, you at least exchanged emails three times. Yeah. I went back to Wrexham, um, I did a search, and I could see that there were actually 76 people in Wrexham who were gay. Whereas, you know, 18 months before, when I, when I was not around, no I was like, yeah. everyone's gay. But, you know. Anyway, so out of those people, um, I found a profile, uh, a very handsome um, guy, my own age, um, and I sent him a message, and we went on a date. And, you know, the, the nice end of that story is we eventually got married. Yeah. It actually did happen. You know, Tom and I went on that first date and uh, absolutely fell in love. There was, it was love at first sight. I was convinced, utterly convinced. Um, I'd never experienced that feeling moment with anybody, uh, but it was strong enough an emotion for me to then tell family... It was time to then tell my family. Because you went on the first date and your, your mum naturally just assumed it was a, a woman you were going to date with and she wanted to know details, didn't she, about who you are going to date with and you, you, for obvious reasons, didn't tell her the detail because you'd had to avow to yourself. And um, I think what happened next was that you, you'd had that day. The next day, I think you and Tom were going to go and play golf or something, weren't you? Yep. And your mum asked you about, um, you know, whether you were going to tell her details as to... <laughs> what had happened and isn't it then that you kind of told her that you in fact were gay and the person you're going to meet was a, was a guy yes yeah, so to underline actually how how certain I was that this 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 boy Thomas who I went on a date with the night before 
did a little bit more with as well. But um, was was going to be sticking around as, as as somebody in my life. To underline how sure I was of that, I told my mum the next day that I was that I was gay before I went to see Tom for our second date, which was a, was around a golf with some mutual friends. And um, could turn out we had mutual friends. I was getting ready for my date, and mum noticed. You know, my, my, my son is clearly getting ready to go on a date because yeah. he doesn't normally do his hair or whatever. Uh, and, um, but, but the, the, the backstory to this by a day is that she'd obviously known I was, I was going on a date the day before as well. Mum was like, so who's this person you, you, you're going on, a, on, a, on another date with? And I was like, I don't want to tell you. She had, on that morning, put, it, put in her mind that I was keeping something from her. For, for, for some reason, why would I be keeping something from her? And she was convinced that it was because I was going out with my older brother's ex-girlfriend, Claire. Oh, really? That was the idea she had in her head. Because that would actually be really, really controversial. That yeah. would be like, oh my God. Uh, completely made up in her own head, that, that whole situation. So when she sort of put, put, took me to the point where I had to tell her because she was shouting at me, saying things like, you've never kept anything away from me in your life. <laughs> Little did she know. Um, why on earth can you not tell me this? It just was like, I'm going to put her out of her misery and I'm going to tell her. This is because I'm gay and I'm going out on a second date with a boy, yeah. not a girl. And I have to be honest, I thought she was just going to go, well, about time you told me. God, I've known you yeah. since you were like, whatever. Um, I actually really did think that was going to happen. Um, but you said she broke down and cried, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, utterly heartbroken. I've never seen her so upset. Like, I mean, I think you said, but there's... The most sort of traumatic um, coming out of all was the coming out to your mum and, and seeing her sort of just sort of sense of devastation at learning that... Compared to coming out in the army, it was a million times worse. It was yeah. a million times worse. And, I, you know, I was asked in an interview once, oh, God, you know, coming out in the army must have been, like, the most stressful thing in the world ever. I was like, wasn't as bad as coming out to my mother, you know. Um, coming out to your mum is... What you, yeah, the most stressful event in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you, you, so you left her, I think, kind of upset, and you went off. And um, I think I understand, Boo, you were a bit upset about how that was. And your sister, I think, rang you up, didn't she, and sort of said to you that um, you know your 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 mum was just a bit sort of shocked, really, about what you told her that she'd come round eventually. I was hurt that she cried. Now, I, like I said, I was expecting to say she knew all along because, you know, I am the kid at the age of nine who'd demanded to see Tina Turner at Alton Towers. You know? Yeah. And, and my mum excellently took me to see Tina Turner at Alton Towers. It's a story I'm hoping to pass on in person to Tina one day. <laughs> um, I also was stitched up by HSBC Bank. Not, oh, not of course. So not so long before this great event, because when I was 18, you know, no wonder we went into bloody financial meltdown, not two years later, by the way, but <laughs> on my, literally, my, the day after my 18th birthday, I had a phone call off the bank inviting me in to sign for a credit card. I mean, literally, that's terrible, isn't it? So I had my first credit card, and uh, I blew it in GAY. I blew a lot of it in GAY, because I had to pay for this really expensive habit that I'd picked up of hanging around with gay guys. Great. This is like a, like a year before when you actually came out to her, wasn't it? that she'd spotted, because your bank statements were going back to your, the, the home address in Wales, weren't My mother sees it like this. If it lands in my letterbox, it shows. 
<laughs> I'm opening the letter. Um, yeah, crazy nightmare. But she thinks that's the way the law works, and it's fine. Um, so she would open my mail and pass on anything essential that I might need to know. Yeah. And um, she opens up the HSBC bank statement for my Visa credit card one morning and phoned me and said, oh, you know, yeah, it's fine, everything's fine. Um, credit card statement's arrived. Um, firstly, I'm really concerned about how much you're spending on your credit card. And I think you should pay more than your minimum payment. Okay, standard mum chat done. Yeah. Great. And then she went on to say, but, you know, you're spending a lot of money in a place called Gay. <laughs> and HSBC just ridiculously took the full stops out of G A Y, and just and I'm not I'm not lying, right? Four pages of line after line after line after line of gay 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 gay. Your son is gay 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 gay. And um, when Mum rung me up and asked me about this, oh come on, anybody in the world would be like, shit, my son's gay. Yeah. Look all the money he's spending around all these gay people, and we're talking like we're talking thousands of pounds, right? And. <laughs> um, she asked me and confronted me about it, and good God, what a what an open goal she gave me—an opportunity to just be, you know, crap and come out over the phone and never have to deal with it in a face-to-face person situation. I blamed it on Dean. I said, "Oh, you know, Dean, my really good friend, who's the least gayest person in the world. Um, he's gay, and that's you know that's what we do. I like to support him and go to these places. And do you know what Mum said? I thought he was gay." <laughs> You know, I love this story because I was in the pub the other night asking some people from um, London Titans um, about their coming out stories because I wanted to find out if they had the sort of stories that I could recall from the podcast. And one of them told me a story about how they out themselves, their mother, in almost identical circumstances. I'm not going to tell their name because you know them and I'm really hoping they're going to let me record the, um, their story for a future podcast. But it was that almost identical scenario that he got a phone call from his mum and rather than having the sort of wherewithal like you did to come up with a sort of story explaining away, <laughs> they panicked and asked themselves on the telephone and I, and I hopefully <laughs> save it for a, a future podcast. <laughs> where people oh, great. Be. I thought I have to wait now. Right. <laughs> oh, no, wait till I'm fair. I should tell you, listeners, that I, I must have the honour of being the worst London Titans player in the history of London Titans oh, players, oh, so oh, much oh, so oh. that... I scored an own goal in my first game, and I only lasted <laughs> three months on the season. Uh, I'm not sure you. Like, I'm not sure you hold that. Um, God, do that I not? Claim I to fame, me. but yeah, that whole outing by by chance or well, it just I thought that mum knew I was gay. Put it that way. Yeah. Because of that, and because of a few other things, uh, and in actual fact, it was it was it, it was the opposite. She she said that because you joined the army when you were 16 I just had in my head that you know when you're about 23 you'd get married and when you were 26 you'd have your first kid and then you'd have this wonderful military life and family and that would be you and you know one day you'll be a sergeant major literally that's what she said uh, when we had this conversation yeah. a, a week or so after I think that's the problem isn't it because I think your if your parents never suspected you were gay and I don't think mine had they had envisaged how you were just going to be married and have your career, and then you'd have kids, and then have grandkids. And I think all of a sudden you kind of like pull the rug out from under their feet all of a sudden, and it's just like they had for years and forever had been thinking about that, and all of a sudden it all just changes in a, you know, in a blink of an eye. Well, you're right. And she, when asked about this many years later, explained it in a, in a very articulate way, I thought, uh, on The One Show. And she said, in that instant... 
I mourned for the life that I thought I'd, yeah. now, I'd now lost ahead of me I, in a very selfish sense. I, I get that, yeah. I get, and I also think there's parents kind of like almost worry for you because they think that there's, it's not going to be as, as good a life for you. Now that, because you know, of some of those reasons we spoke about earlier yeah, on, because their preconceptions about what life is like as a sort of gay person. But uh, but what, what I thought was nice about that was your stepdad. I think rang you. I mean, your sister obviously rang you and said, "Look, she'll come round. Just give her a bit of time." But I think your stepdad. I think was it rang you late that day and basically just said, "Look, you know, you know, we love you and it's all going to be okay." And he, I remember his words were, "Don't wor- Phil doesn't do emotions very easily." By the way, it's, an, it's been an ongoing criticism of mine to him in person for some time. Having said that, he's a lovely man, great person, and I love him to pieces. He rang me and said, James, don't worry about your mother. I'll sort her out. Literally. That was, he's like, don't worry at all. And it was was amazing. It was just this man who only entered my life when I was 13. Just just doing something utterly brilliant. I think Phil, I think Phil always knew I was gay. Mm. Just do. And, but I think mum was blinded. Because she's my mother, right? And that, and that. Because um, even my sister, who I was just like really close to, by the way, she's ten years older than me. By the way, I have a sister called Liza with a Z. That's like, <laughs> come on, <laughs> come on. It's like, oh, I was going to be destined to be gay. You kind of look back now and think you can't understand why you never really told her because you were very close to her, weren't you? And you... And we're the closest people in the world now. We're yeah. going to see Steps on the third of December. Um, <laughs> It just seems it just seems utterly bizarre that um, I never I never did have that courage. But it's North Wales and it's it's the early it's the nineties yeah. actually. You know it's just not. You know, do you know one of the most profound experiences of my life was at the age of thirteen seeing episode one of Queer as Folk on Channel Four. Do you know what? It's funny. I I don't know why, but I've gone back in the last couple of weeks to watching. That series again. And um, you were watching that. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it's amazing. And I kind of like think back then to watching it. And I wasn't out then, but I obviously re- you know, realised that I was gay. But um, yeah, that, that, was, that was a phenomenal programme. Um, it's funny because here we are saying that you didn't really understand, didn't really. At the age of 13, when I watched that in my bedroom, with the volume off, by the way. Literally <laughs> watching the motions of people well, doing th- There was conversation in that programme. <laughs> yeah, like, just this one moment that really sticks out. I can't put my finger on what it was. Um, I knew that um, what I was seeing on screen was talking to me directly and my life at some point would be a version of what I was seeing on screen. I just knew that there was something, there was a connection between me and that t- and that TV screen at that moment, and it was informing me of something that was going to happen to me. It was just like, this is, I think this is actually going to be my life. I but that I was, could... like, mind-blowing, because there'd been nothing else like that I on don't... TV. I mean, that was just like, you look back now and realise, sort of, when it came out, that was just such a, a well, for me, it was quite a big game-changer in terms of... how br- And how brave must it have been for the controller yeah, of Channel 4 to absolutely. say, all right, let's do it. And, and then let's, and let's not forget, you know, what Russell T. Davis did for, for millions of people. Yeah. Amazing, actually. And, you know, other people did as well. Jonathan Harvey with Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. Yeah. You know, I spoke to Jonathan and he said, I don't think the BBC would commission Gimme, Gimme, Gimme today because Funny. the world's changed. It was just right for that time. It was really, you know, here, here's a TV programme where the protagonist is a gay man. Yeah. Which was... Again, you know, unheard of. Gimme, gimme, gimme was a game changer on that. 
Uh, and I loved it. I used to watch it with my mum. And we was, mum, you know, I, I remember mum saying, oh, give me, give me, give me some tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so in one breath it's like, oh, we love this programme, and you know, be engaged bad and wrong. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thanks to James for being my guinea pig. The interview came to an abrupt end as James dashed off for his date, and we agreed to find another time to finish our chat, but never actually did. Later this week, in a short addendum, you hear how we met up recently, and I got the opportunity to catch up with James and ask him what advice he'd give to his younger self and any tips he had for people grappling with it coming out. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at comingoutthepod. The website is at comingoutthepod.com and you can contact us on email at comingoutthepod at icloud.com. And if you'd like to share your coming out story with me, then please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you, so get in touch. Tell me your thoughts about the podcast and if you have a coming out story you'd like to share.